Good morning. Um, today we're reading from Matthew 21, 10 through 17, and in your pew Bibles, it starts on 841. Verse 10. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And they said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city and into Bethany, and he lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. So that Palm Sunday was the first time that Jesus had actually entered into Jerusalem, and he enters into it triumphantly, riding a beast. And the messianic secret is now starting to trickle out. You know, every time... Someone had said, you are the Son of God, you are the living Christ. He would tell them to tamp that down, wanted to keep it secret. It was not time to let that secret out yet. He had ministry to do, but now he is letting it leak out. And people are finding out and people are praising him because of that. Let's go to verse 9 in chapter 21 of Matthew. It says, Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. This is an incredible, incredible moment. Go to the next verse and you, and you see this. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. The word there for uproar is seismos. It's where we get the word seismic. This was quaking. This is earth shaking. An incredible, pivotal time in history. Who is this, they asked, and at least they knew. The religious leaders really didn't, but they knew. Now, so Jesus makes this uh, really amazing uh, uh, you know, entrance into Jerusalem. Now, this is the first time he's at the big city. Who is he going to go confront? Because when you think about it, in context, you would think that he was going to confront the occupying Romans. Maybe go to a Roman barracks and start you know, taking them out one-on-one, each of the centurions, or maybe go to the Roman headquarters, wherever it was. But where does he go immediately to confront people? To the temple. Goes to the temple and confronts the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, along with the money changers and peddlers. Why? Because they really were representing the religious establishment, the religious culture. Now, the law of Moses said that every good Jew, at least Jewish male, would go at least once a year to offer sacrifices at the temple and uh, offer also a half-shekel currency in order to help pay for the temple tax. And so the thing was, they would bring in these pagan coins that had pagan idols on them, Roman or Greek, but you could not take those close to the temple because they were blasphemous. So you had these currency folks there who would have a currency, currency exchange program 
and you would bring the money to the table, and they would exchange it for uh, non-idolatrous coins, which you would take in. And also you had animals sold there because you were supposed to offer at least one sacrifice per year for you and for your family. And if you were coming from a number of miles, you didn't want to have to carry the animal all the way into Jerusalem. And so they used to set up right outside of the city of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley, and you could buy your animals there and then exchange the monies there as well. Jesus walks in, though, to the temple and sees it going on right there, and he's infuriated. And as you know, he turns over the tables and drives people out of there, who, people who think that they are effectively doing God's work, but in reality, what they're doing is acting on the institutionalism of their religion. What would we call it today? I used to hear it a lot, oh, I don't have much to do with organized religion. More recently, I hear a lot about people talking about church culture, church culture, Now, before we wave a shaming finger at everybody else but ourselves, we need to think about this. Can you and I sometimes be like the peddlers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the money changers? Do we ever kind of cave in to a church culture mentality and practice? So as we enter into this last week of Jesus' life, I think we really need to take a look at that, especially if we're we're really moving toward the the, uh, uh, climactic part of Lent. So in what ways can you and I overcome cultural Christianity? First of all, we've got to remove any cultural barriers that keep people from attending church. Let's look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people and buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Now, Jesus is angry in part because of the commerce that's taking place right there at the temple. Yes, he's upset about that, but again, there's another reason, and it has to do with the location of it. Up until the time of Jesus, you would go out, like I said, to the Kidron Valley, right outside of Jerusalem, to have the currency exchange to buy your animals, and then you went on into Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer your sacrifice, give the temple tax. But Caiaphas, who was the high priest when Jesus was around, changed all that, and he said, you know what, let's just bring it into the temple courtyard and do it right here. It'll be more convenient. And that's what infuriates Jesus. What was the precise location of where all this was going on? The court of the Gentiles. It was the one place where Gentiles could go to worship Yahweh, the Jewish God. It was the one place they could go to maybe hear a word from this God whom they worshiped, and maybe he is the right God. Maybe I need to check this out. But here they walk in to the court of the Gentiles. It's the only place that people who do not know Yahweh have a chance to hear about him. And what's going on? They're selling things. They're exchanging money right here at the one place where they need to hear a word from the Lord. Many of them are showing up just wondering, let's check out this God. Maybe he's the one. Is this what it all looks like? With what's in front of me, it looks like a market. It's been rendered trivial, and that upsets Jesus all the more. Look at verse 13. He said to them, the Scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. It's creating a barrier to outsiders who could come and worship and maybe learn about this God who is the sovereign God of all things. And so Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. And again, that's one of the high points of the Old Testament And uh, uh, it talks about how God is going to have a temple where all God's people could come. It says, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Israel and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer 
for all nations. Many translations say for all people. It's here for everyone. But here you have these barriers to these Gentiles having the opportunity to learn about this God who is the God. Jesus is upset about that, so he tags on a passage from Jeremiah 7.11, which says what? You have made my temple into a house of thieves, a den of robbers. What is he saying? You are robbing outsiders from the chance to hear from the word of the Lord. You're robbing them of that opportunity to hear from the God of all gods. Now, I hope we don't have such barriers here in our church or in any churches in and around here. You know, I hope that folks show up, but that they don't find things that are making them want to remain unchurched or de-churched. You know, I'm talking about those trappings of organized religion, those things where sometimes we'll just smirk and say, well, that's just church culture. Just this past week, I was contacted by a friend of mine. He's been a fellow pastor for over 30 years, dear friend of mine I knew from Centrifuge days. And, and um, he contacted me, and I couldn't tell exactly why. It was great to hear from him. We hadn't really heard from him in a couple of years. But he started to talk, and he just said, it's, it's been a tough year and a half. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, same old stuff. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, the petty things, people arguing about non-essentials, Somebody didn't get to sing a solo. The elder board, you got some people on there trying to, you know, uh, show their muscle in there to show who's really in charge of the church. People talking about petty stuff at, at business meetings, people getting upset because they're not getting their way on something. You got busy bodies who are going around getting everybody else's business when they don't need to. And, and he said, it was interesting, what he said was, it's crashing and burning me right now, but I'll be okay. <laughs> well, I appreciate his sense of calling to stay with it, but I... I I grieve over the fact that he's crashing and burning at the moment over these things that are basically projections of church culture, (laughs) uh, of the bad part of what used to be called organized religion. And, and, And I'm especially concerned about this when it comes to young people and how they perceive the church. It's very interesting. Uh, five years ago, six years ago, the Pew, uh, uh, trust did this huge survey of millennials, you know, folks who are millennials, the younger generation. And they found, and I found this interesting, younger generations have more positive views than their elders over a number of institutions that play a big part in American society, except for two institutions. You know what they are? One is the news media, and unfortunately, the other is the church. And it's been interesting the decline just in the last five years. Look at 2010. They did this huge in-depth survey, huge sample of, of millennials. 75% say church has a positive impact on our country. Okay, that's 2010. Five years later, 2015, 55%. They replicated it down. That's a 20% drop. That's a steep drop in five years. And we should be concerned about that. And they asked some people to elaborate, offer some commentary on that. And they talked a lot about the clubbiness of churches, the institutionalism of it, sometimes the pettiness of it. It's interesting. Uh, Stephen Ray showed me during Sunday school hour that, that he just asked on Facebook just anyone who would want to comment, you know, why do you no longer go to church and just no holds barred? And it was really insightful <laughs> what, what some folks say on there. And a lot of it they talk about the hypocrisy, but again, it's that hypocrisy that I think emerges much more out of church culture. And I worry about that. I worry about the younger generation with that. 
You know, because we can create barriers to people who are wondering if there really is a word from the Lord. Just like the Gentiles in Jesus' day who are standing there seeing what seems to have been a trivialized place of worship. I hope we don't ever get there. I don't think we will, but I think we need to remind ourselves. I'm grateful that we really don't have that here. And, and I'm not naive. I know what goes on in church. But, I mean, uh, I really don't see a lot of this kind of thing going on, and I'm grateful for that. I really grieve, though, for a lot of my colleagues. I grieve a lot for churches who have to deal with it a whole lot more than we do. I hope you and I will continue to build a hedge around ourselves and and that which is really central in a way that we protect ourselves from becoming church culture-ish because it creates barriers to people, barriers to people who really need to be here most. Because if, if we don't do that, we're just reinforcing what they accuse the church of can be a real turn off to younger folks, and younger folks seem like they can sniff that out <laughs> coming up Overton Road, so you got to be really, really careful with that. And, and I think we're at a point with younger generation where I, I see it, and it's almost like two extremes. You've got those who are just becoming totally de-churched, and they don't want to ever have anything to do with church again, but you've got this amazing group of young people over here who are totally sold out. They get the pitfalls of the church because we are all sinners and we are all broken, but you know what? They are going to press on and do amazing work, and in many ways, I think they are the hope of the world at this point. Well, how else can we battle this cultural Christianity that Jesus himself even encountered way back when? Well, we do it when we, and let me say this twice, when we reject self-preservation and choose kingdom adaptation. Let me say it again. When we reject self-preservation and choose kingdom adaptation. Let's look at uh, chapter 21, verses 14 and 15. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the elders were indignant. I always love this. They were seeing wonderful miracles, but they were indignant. Why? Well, all this was happening in a new way, in a different way. It was threatening to them because they were no longer in control, right? They liked it done the the, the good old way. So Jesus' confrontation with them at the temple really is a confrontation with the established traditional cultural religion that they knew of and which they valued because they could keep their thumb on it. And that's what cultural religion does, and and it does it for the sake of self-preservation. And that culture back then moved immediately to start snuffing out this Messiah, as you know. Now, Christianity is institutional in a good and bad sense. Let's be honest. I mean, we need infrastructure, no doubt. We need organization, Uh, And in addition to churches, we need good schools that confess Christ. We need uh, good medical uh, uh, establishments. We need good missions agencies. We need good seminaries and the like. That's great. But the thing is, depending on how it is led and how the people conduct themselves within it, you know, it can either breathe the oxygen of the Holy Spirit and do amazing things and fan the flame of God, as we're talking about this year, or it can breathe the carbon monoxide of, of institutionalism. And we've got to protect ourselves from that because when we do that, we become kingdom ineffective and we really begin to entropy. I think especially today, that's so important. You know, the first time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he confronts the religious leaders, the cultural religion that they seem to follow, the culturalism that you found there in the temple. And that really shouldn't be a surprise, by the way. You go to the very last uh, page of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And there's this wonderful prophecy about God sending his messenger who will show up in a surprising fashion at the temple. 
Uh, Malachi 3.1, look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Isn't that cool? Last page of the Old Testament. Get to the Gospels. Who is it who enters the temple in such an amazing way? And if you read on in Malachi, he says, this messenger is going to come in and condemn those who are mistreating others and those who are treating things in a cultural fashion. That's what he talks about. Those who are mistreating others, those who are really not exhibiting authentic faith. Well, cultural Christianity happens when we get so hung up on ourselves and our own self-preservation, and we do that at the expense of kingdom work. We really kind of forget our purpose, and we almost forget about who Jesus is. And this is. Isn't it interesting in this passage in Matthew 21, when he enters the city, the only people who truly recognize him are who? Children and outcasts and homeless people. The religious establishment don't really recognize who he is. But I wonder, could he sometimes come into our midst in the form of someone like that? And maybe we would miss him. Anybody heard of this poem called When Jesus Came to Birmingham? Anybody heard of that? This guy named Jeffrey Stuttered Kennedy uh, was a chaplain uh, in World War I, chaplain for the Army, uh, an Englishman, and uh, an amazing guy. And in 1918, he penned this poem And uh, for him it was when Jesus came to Birmingham, but there's no reason we can't say when Jesus came to Birmingham here in uh, 2016. Let's read this and and, and just go through it. I think it's, it's, it's really wonderful. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns, red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham... They simply passed him by. They would not hurt a hair on him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus leaned against a wall and cried for Calvary. I wonder if we're ever passing by people right here, people who need not only to hear a word from the Lord, but to need to hear the fact that they can have community here and be encouraged here and be a part of a tribe like this one. Do we sometimes fail to recognize Jesus in the face of the needy? I always love what Mother Teresa used to say. Whenever I meet someone in need, she would say, it's really Jesus in his most distressing disguise. But see, sometimes in the church, and I'm going to talk about our church, but the church universal, we'd rather keep things clean and comfy, and I think a good word is antiseptic. Just want to keep it that way, swab it clean. And when Jesus showed up at the temple, think about it, that wasn't a pristine scene, was it? It wasn't controlled or comfy. Bird cages tumbling over and birds flying around, sheep bleeding. You had the stench of animals. You know, sometimes being the real church is not pristine. You can't, if you're going to go out here and do ministry, you can't escape the stench of poverty or, or, or the vision of sickness that you see among people out there. You, you can't withstand uh, 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 the face of antagonism out there. You know, the temple, they tried to keep it real tidy. But Jesus wasn't. 
Jesus seemed to get into multiple situations that were quite awkward, and I think he calls us to do the same. But sometimes we want to keep the temple tidy. It's nicer, it's easier, and we get obsessive about our own self-preservation, but we need to fan the flames of God's Spirit and get out there and do that messy, dirty, marvelous ministry of the kingdom. So we don't need to fall prey to this church culture stuff that that is all about self-preservation and that creates barriers to people being a part of God's church. A final way we overcome all of that, when we refuse to let the peripheral become central and the central become peripheral. Let me say it one more time. When we refuse to let the peripheral become central and the central become peripheral. Look at verse 15 one more time. The leading priests and the teachers of the law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David, but they were what? Indignant. Saw these wonderful miracles, but they were indignant. They were bothered by it. They were totally missing what mattered because what was happening was beyond their protocol and it threatened their control, it threatened their status. But they were totally missing what mattered, what was central. I want to keep it the same. How sad it is when, when you and I deify the secondary, when, when we, when we uh, idolize the non-essentials. And you and I fall prey to that. And whenever we do that, Christ gets set over to the side. Central becomes peripheral, the peripheral becomes Central. It's really cool, though, for one golden hour while Jesus was there, the temple became what it was intended to be while he was there. The tables were turned, literally and spiritually, and it was a seismic, seismos moment. Look at verse 16. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Haven't you ever read the Scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. A lot of us grew up learning it, what? Out of the mouths of babes will come praise. And I think about that, I think about that passage a lot, and I think, yeah, this younger generation coming up, we need to pray for them hard, we need to uh, encourage them as much as we possibly can, because again, I think they are a great hope for tomorrow's church. Are we ever making an idol out of the church? I wonder about that. You know, Jesus had to go and cleanse the temple. Maybe that's partly why if you go to almost the last page of all of Scripture in the New Testament, what does it say about the temple? When we get to heaven, there will be no temple because what? It says God the Father and Christ the Lamb will be the temple. And I think that's what we ought to be about. (laughs) Not go to a church, but to be the church, to be sanctuary to other people. We're called to be temples following in his footsteps. Well, it must have been a marvelous hour with all that great stuff going on at the temple once he finally showed up and moved them away from this cultural understanding of the faith. But notice the last verse, verse 17. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. The Greek verb there for stayed literally means he camped out overnight. I think here he was in his very father's house, but in the long run he had to leave. He was not even welcome there in his own house. And he had to go two miles down the road to Bethany and camp out there. I wonder if they recognized him there. You ever been in a situation where (laughs) it's like the central becomes peripheral and the peripheral becomes central and you wonder where he is or where he would be? I haven't shared this in a long time, but I went to one Southern Baptist convention. One. And done, by the way. 
1990, and I'm a Baptist. I love being a Baptist, but I don't want to go to the convention. Uh, it was awful. It was in New Orleans. It was our first time there. It was so hot outside and in the Superdome. There was a lot of mean-spiritedness going on and people just attacking one another and cutting people off, and it was just so incredibly petty. And I remember literally sitting there thinking, what would Jesus, I mean, there are thousands of people in here just at each other's throats, and I thought, what would Jesus do if he walked in here? And I thought, you know, I kind of meditated on that, kind of filled my mind with that. I think he would walk in and look at things for about a minute and yawn and then go down to Bourbon Street and minister to people. And I remember that's kind of what we decided to do. Let's get out of here. And we were walking down Bourbon Street. Long story short, we got to that corner somewhere close to where Preservation Hall is. Is that still there? You know, birthplace of jazz and all that. And we kind of got to that corner. And I remember looking catty corner to this corner over here. And there was a, a street preacher who was carrying a cross, literally carrying a wooden cross. And he was out on the corner just preaching away, preaching away. And then I saw a guy who had his Baptist uh, messenger pin on, his little badge that you got when you got to the convention, and he walked up to the guy and started talking to him, and it was almost like in an instant they were in this heated argument. And, and, and I didn't hear all of it, and I was kind of embarrassed anyway, but I mean, you know, I could just hear little snippets of it, because, you know, Bourbon Street's a loud place. And, uh, uh, but, you know, I heard enough to where it sounded like they were arguing over predestination versus free will. I'm thinking, you know, hey, you know, we're and we're all brothers in Christ, and talk about the central becoming peripheral, the peripheral becoming central, and I don't know exactly, you know, I think that was at least part of the argument. They were just in this heat of, you know, you had the veins popping out and all that, just screaming at each other, and I remember glancing over here, and I don't know if she was a stripper or a prostitute, but there was a young lady who was just sitting uh, at the gutter uh, with her head between her knees, and she was just vomiting. She was she was clearly inebriated, and she was just sitting there. And, you know, that just added to the, uh, talk about the awkwardness, the awkwardness of the moment. And, and I was at this point of becoming really, really just disillusioned. And then I saw this woman step out of the crowd in her Salvation Army uniform. God bless her. And she came over to where this woman was and just sat down beside her in the gutter, put her arm around her, patted her, and they just started, she started kind of rocking her like this. <laughs> and they just kind of sat there while these holy men over here at the temple, you know, were trying to set each other straight. Where do you think Jesus was at that moment? I hope we know. Let's pray together. Forgive us, O oh God, when... Uh, we become way too inward, both individually and collectively. Forgive us when we feel like we have to act a certain way that really becomes sort of a facade, a hypocritical facade. Forgive us whenever we just create any barriers that keep people from realizing this is sanctuary here. You are more welcome and accepted here and unconditionally loved here than any place you're going to find. That's what church should be. So God, help us not to be a temple that trivializes you and worshiping you and following you, being your disciples. Help us to be temples ourselves, uh, where we can create space for people to enter into our lives and the lives of others in this church, among this tribe. Again, may we not live 
in a shallow way, but in a way that lives deeply and passionately and wholeheartedly and in a sold-out way for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.